In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The love of God in Christ Jesus be with each and every one of you this 17th Sunday after Pentecost. Inherent to the moral decline and chaos around us is a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of disobedience. Growing up in my household, we had a slogan that perfectly expresses the ethos of our present age. It goes like this, you're not the boss of me. So puerile, so immature was this phrase that it wasn't long until it became taken up upon our lips ironically so that any amount of good would be met with this response. My brother might come to me with a popsicle and say, here, take your popsicle. And I'd say, you're not the boss of me. What a breath of fresh air to hear the words of St. Paul who says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And he continues, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It is obedience that sets us apart to do all things without grumbling or questioning. And it is precisely this obedience that is so counter-cultural, at least according to our cultural norms, where everyone simply obeys himself. How wholesome, how nurturing is the biblical perspective on obedience and the gift of obedience from Heavenly Father to Son and Child of God. Much neglected, much neglected. But the truth is, as the rebellious and disobedient world around us saturates itself, the wholesome nature of obedience shines forth. It becomes an alternative, an alternative to the immature obedience to one's own self in all things, comes the spiritual maturity and blessedness of being obedient to God, whether it's painful or not, and insofar as we're given. Luther picks this up in his concept, the bondage of the will. The will isn't bound in such a way that an external force is forcing the will to do that which it does not want to do, as if we could all simply say, the devil made me do it. The bondage of the will is precisely that the will desires what is contrary to God in and of itself, and that we are then trapped in this will, never able to transcend our own selfishness never able to hear or obey the transcendent voice of our Heavenly Father who knows that even what we desire for ourselves is not the greatest good for ourselves. Christ came not only to blot out all our iniquities, not only to make perfect atonement for all of our sins, that we might stand reconciled before God as His children, but Christ also came to set us free to change our wills so that we begin to will that which he would have us do, so that we begin to express 
the blessedness of obedience in our lives, and in so doing, we become conformed to the obedient one on the cross, to our Lord Jesus Christ, true Son of God, who obeyed his Father even unto death, and a death by which he sets us free. We have plenty of opportunity to practice spiritual freedom and exercise spiritual maturity simply in being obedient in the various vocations, stations, and roles in which God has placed us in our lives. Children to parents, wives to husbands, and all of us together to government as the fathers in the civil sphere, to pastors as fathers in the ecclesiastical sphere, with the all-important caveat that, of course, we do not serve man but God. And if anyone tells us to do that which God forbids, we do not obey. Again, from St. Paul, do all things without grumbling and questioning. The alternative is to live in a perpetual state of rebellion, a perpetual state of simply shouting out to the world and to all those around you, you're not the boss of me. That's going to be the title of my homily this morning, You're Not the Boss of Me. Because that is essentially what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. The context is Holy Week. Jesus has entered Jerusalem riding on the donkey. He has done many great signs and taught many wonderful things. And the Pharisees, the elders and scribes, are deeply offended by what he's doing and by what he's saying. So they question his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? You're not the boss of us. To their question, by what authority, Jesus asks a question of his own. What about John the Baptist? What about his baptism? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Of course, they can't acknowledge it was from heaven. If they do, Jesus will say, why didn't you believe, John? Not only to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but also believe, John, when he pointed at me and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why did you not believe? They can't, on the other hand, express themselves truthfully because they are cowards. Because they fear the crowds. They can't say John and his baptism were from man. The crowds will jump all over them because the crowds believe John to be a prophet. So being trapped, the scribes and elders simply don't give an answer. And that might seem like the end of it. It might seem like Jesus goes on to another topic, but he doesn't. He tells the parable of the two sons. Perhaps I should put this caveat in there for the children in our congregation this is the don't try this at home parable of Jesus. <laughs> a father goes to his first son and says, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son says, no. And only later on does he go. The father says to his second son, you go work in the vineyard today. And that son says, no problem, dad. You can count on me. 
but he doesn't go. Which son, Jesus asks, did the will of his father? That is a tough question. In one sense, neither of them. It is fascinating the different answers you get. For example, the Pharisees in our text today say it was the first who did the will of the Father. Yes, it's true, he said no to the Father's face, but he did, after all, end up in the vineyard. That's their answer. A missionary in our own contemporary time brought this parable without context to some Palestinians, and those Palestinians gave the opposite answer. They said that it was the second who did the will of his father, the one who said yes and then did not go. Because in their eyes, it is a far greater sin to say no to your father's face. At which point I learned that despite all appearances, my father must also be a Palestinian. (laughs) Neither son does what is right in the Father's eyes. So either way they answer, Jesus is going to have them. In fact, we might even see it very plainly that with both sons, there's a yes and a no. With these Pharisees, there's really no yes at all. Theirs is simply a no and a no. No, they didn't listen to John the Baptist nor when even the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the outcasts of Israel were coming in, not even then did they say yes, no and no. Whether it was John pointing them to Jesus or Jesus pointing them to himself, they said no and no. And sadly, this has continued in Judaism to this very day, where Christ comes and all the Gentiles We ourselves are converted into his church. Yet again, they say no to Jesus and no even at this great and wonderful sign. No and no. Now, whether we're looking at the sons in the parable that had the yes and the no, or whether we're looking at those who rejected Jesus and simply had the no and the no, and whether also we consider our own selves and those times where we have said no, to our Heavenly Father, whether we've changed our minds or not, or those times where we've said yes to Him and have yet not done His will. What we'll see is a panoply of disobedient sons, which is meant to highlight the one obedient Son, the only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there is yes and Yes. Yes, he will go into the vineyard. Yes, he will do what his father commands. Which, of course, we know to be, yes, he will even give his life on the cross. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 puts this so wonderfully. Jesus was obedient. Obedient. And so obedient that he was willing to take the form of a servant, the everlasting Son of God, to become as we are. But more obedient still, Jesus was even willing to die in obedience to his Father, though he had done no wrong, not even a single sin. 
But his obedience goes further still. Not just any death, but he would obey his father and submit himself to the most shameful of all deaths, the death of the cross. And he would do all of this in perfect obedience to his father and out of perfect love for us, for tax collectors, prostitutes, nose in in the air Pharisees, and you and me. Every last sin atoned for by Christ. And because he was obedient unto death on the cross. Now, obedience and the death of Christ, you see, cannot be separated. In fact, if you despise obedience, it's only a matter of time until you despise the cross. Is it not precisely those who despise piety and sanctification and obedience who then make Jesus' obedient death on the cross of no account? In fact, they say it was an accident. Or they go further still and say his act of obedience on the cross was actually an act of unbelief and disobedience where he accused God of forsaking him. Flee radical Lutheranism like the plague. With one hand, they take law and obedience away, and with the other hand, they take Christ's cross and his blood away. The very blood by which we were bought. The very obedience which is our joy and our inheritance given us by Christ. It is precisely through Christ's obedience, that the entire world, indeed each one of us, is transformed, transfigured as it were. The cross itself transfigured from the place of absolute dishonor into the place of absolute honor. The place of no authority whatsoever into the place of absolute authority, authority over the heavens and the earth. And so too we ourselves are transfigured from slaves to our own will to those set free to be conformed into the obedient image of God's beloved Son and to share in that richness and joy even now. From the cross, Jesus prays to his Father, A prayer that extends not only to those soldiers that were crucifying him that day, but to all of us who have crucified him by our sins. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And because of Jesus' obedience, his prayer was heard. And the Father not only raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, but he promises to raise each and every one of us as well. You're not the boss of me. Those aren't words we ever want to direct toward our God or his Christ. Rather, it is to our past sins that we should say, you're not the boss of me. For my Lord Jesus has taken you as his own, and he has put you away forever on his cross. 
And it is the conscience that condemns us and our heart which accuses us to which we should say, you're not the boss of me. There is a greater than you, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood and who, by whose voice the heavens and the earth were made. And he declares me innocent and righteous for his sake. And so too, it is not to the rightful and godly authorities that we should say, you're not the boss of me, but rather to the sinful nature and old Adam in our hearts. To him we should say, you're not the boss. For not only has my Lord Jesus Christ died for me, he has poured out his Holy Spirit into me in the waters of holy baptism that I might be made new, that I might be his own and live under him in righteousness and blessedness now and forever. Christ alone is our boss, our Lord, our Savior, all and all. May he be with you this day, my brothers and sisters in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.